Lord again, God bless you. You may be seated. I love it how first Sunday of the month is almost like the Catholic Church. You stand, you sit, you stand, you sit, you repeat. It reminds you of that. But I'll tell you what, God has been so good to this church. This is the biggest it's ever been. It's filling up now, even in our second service. And you know what that means. Either have a third service or start another campus or expand our building. All of that is just exciting. So I want to thank you for being a part of this church, starting off the new year in a powerful way. Finances in, in January were amazing. Attendance was amazing. We'll be meeting with the leaders today, just going over what God is doing. Life groups are multiplying. We started a life group outside of our normal parameter because we've been growing so much. So there was one that met this Saturday at Belmont and Cragen with the Santiago's. Let's give it up for them starting it. Thank you. I mean, normally we, we do it every three months, but we were just like, no, man, we need to push something out right now and keep this moving. God is doing it. And he's doing it through us. God chose to use people just like us. He used the apartment that my wife and I were in. He used the leaders that came. And, man, I will shed a tear right now for my, um, my Spanish Armando in the back, Salvador. He just put up a picture on Facebook that showed the angle from where he's at translating for us right now. And he's, man, I will cry right now just thinking about it. And he said, what an honor it is to serve God. Salvador was in the home Bible study with us. Salvador, it's been an honor serving God with you. Let's give it up for the Armano in the back today. I know some of you want me to let it out. No, you don't. It's an ugly cry. I don't have a movie cry. I have an ugly cry. I I snort and it gets messy. But I will let it out, but I got to get on to other things. So maybe the Lord just prevented it. I don't know, but... God is using this church. God is using you. Keep coming. Keep inviting your friends and family. And if you're new, if you're just like, man, I'm just kicking the tires, taking a test drive, welcome. Uh, This is a great time to be a part of the church. It's only getting better from here. We're going to get into a new sermon series on the book of 1 John. Keep it up here for me, please. We're going to go through a little bit before we get into the text. But if you want to open your phone or app or Bible up to that uh, passage, 1 John chapter 1. Guess who wrote 1 John? Take a guess. John. Guess who wrote Timothy? See, that's a little trick right there, right? Paul wrote to Timothy, and he didn't name his epistles after himself, but this one's named after John. And the reason why it is, is because epistles were generally named after the person they went to or the people group. That's why the epistle uh, of Paul to Timothy is called Timothy, and to Titus, it's called Titus, to Philemon, etc. And then when it's written to a region, it's called Ephesians, Philippians, etc. But we only know roughly where John was writing, so we don't know much about it as we get into it. He doesn't have your standard greeting as Paul. But let me tell you a little bit about John. John was probably the youngest out of the 12 disciples. He was a fisherman as well as his brother. They worked in the family business of fishing. And if you want to be about specifics of brothers, there were two sets of brothers in the disciples, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And both of those sets of brothers were fishermen. So John, being about the youngest from what we can tell from history, was also one of the most radical. When they were preaching one time and they didn't listen to what they had to say, John and his brother came to Jesus and said, should we just start the fire right now, the Armageddon party right now? Can we just call down fire on these guys? We told them. They didn't 
didn't want it, just send the fire. And that's how he was nicknamed with his brother, the Sons of Thunder. So they were called the Sons of Thunder, so they were radical. Jesus did have people he brought with them that he did not bring everywhere. Out of his 12 disciples, he had three key disciples that he only brought with them to the mountain of transfiguration and to see some miracles. John was a part of that with his brother. So John was a close disciple, not only a disciple, but a close disciple. Then we learn about John at the Last Supper. He was probably what we would call the closest disciple, maybe being the youngest. Jesus was fond of him, looked to him like a little brother or whether it was just his personality, we don't know. But he was said to have leaned his head on Jesus's chest and he talked to Jesus from that point of view. In our culture, that might be a little bit weird, but we have to understand their culture was different. Holy kisses were exchanged even among men. There was nothing homosexual about that. Somebody said amen. Oh, that's you, big burly man. Maybe you'll exchange one of those after service. Whoever wants to exchange a holy kiss with that gentleman, he's, he's open for it. Just as long as it's a holy kiss, okay? And we don't take it to the next level here. But he was there because they would sit on the floor while they ate, and eating, like for us, was an event. But they wouldn't move from the kitchen to the living room. They normally ate in what they would call their living room. And so for him to be reclining with Jesus and chilling like that is nothing but just love and respect. Now, when we look to his gospel, and let me just help you understand this, the difference between a gospel and an epistle is a gospel is about Jesus and his life. An epistle is written by an apostle to the church after Jesus has ascended to heaven. Now, let me say this before we get into what a gospel is and how John wrote his. Epistles are just as important as gospels because Jesus in the gospel said, that after he would go, he would give revelation knowledge to the disciples so they could further what we would call the canon or the rule of scripture. How we would know what God wanted us to know would not only be out of Jesus's mouth, it would also come from his apostles. Now, John, when he wrote his disciple, uh, his gospel rather, as a disciple, it's a little bit different than Matthew and Mark. As a matter of fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are looking looked at so similar that they're called the synoptic gospels to mean that there's like a similarity between them. So we assume from history, though we don't know precisely, we think John wrote after them kind of filling in the blanks. Now this is good to remember that the gospels don't contradict, they complement, think about them as surround sound. Here's evidence of why they would be like this. Think about it. If I took all of the words of Jesus out of all four gospels, combined and counted all of those words, do you know that the count of words is about the same as what a man would speak in just three ordinary days? Meaning if we took all of the words of Jesus and stretched them out over your time of talking over three days, you would say those same amount of words. And yet Jesus taught for three and a half years. Why is that important to know? Because each gospel writer led by the Holy Spirit is going to pull out from that wealth of teaching from Jesus the various things that God wants us to know. Now, what's unique about John's gospel is that John points out things that the others don't have. John talks about being born again. The other gospels don't mention it. John talks about uh, Jesus being sent by the Father and John 3.16, God so loved the world. In the other gospels, love is really not mentioned a lot. 
But he speaks about love. And so then because he brings up these things we've never heard before, and most of them are about love, he's known as the apostle of love. Somebody say apostle of love. Thank you. And gentlemen, you could turn me down just a little bit, either the monitors or, or the, the mains. Thank you. So as the apostle of love, give you an example. At the Last Supper, when the, thank you, when the communion was taken, does he mention all of the things about the bread and the wine and all of that? No, he mentions a story about Jesus that no one had mentioned, and that is Jesus washed his disciples' feet at the Last Supper, and then he says to them, I do this because I want to lay down my life for you. No greater love has a man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. That comes from the Gospel of John, so unique. He also talks the most about the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16. He really fills in the gap to help us understand who is the person of the Holy Spirit and how does he relate to the Father and the Son. Well, summarizing it all together in the Gospel of John, we would say it's unique. It's centered around Jesus as the one who loves us and lays down his life for us, and it teaches us about the Spirit. Well, guess what we're going to see when we go to his first epistle? Now, not writing the narrative of Jesus, but continuing the revelation about Jesus, we should see some of those same things. We should see the love of God expressed. We should see that the Holy Spirit is emphasized. We should see that intimacy, fellowship with Jesus is important because that's how he lived as a disciple. If you've ever heard this phrase, it comes from the, gospel, uh, from the epistle of John, God is love. That comes from this book right here. Aren't you glad that he wrote that in there? And so when we come to this epistle, we need to come understanding who John is, how God is using him to write, and where he's at in history. So he's after the gospel, he's already wrote that. So if you were a part of his church, you probably had his gospel. You would not have received the download of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why? Because those were traveling with the other apostles. Now, later on, we bundled them together and called it a New Testament. But just think about you're here in the time of John. You're going to probably have the gospel of John, and now you're going to receive this letter. And you're going to trust it because this is from a companion of Jesus. But if Eventually, he's going to write 2nd and 3rd John, other epistles that you'll receive. And then before he goes to be with Jesus, he's going to write the book of Revelation. Now, let me just help you real quick. The book of Revelation is not a revelation of God's wrath. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ coming to judge the earth. And the reason why we believe John was given the book of Revelation is because he was the youngest and lived the longest. And he's the only one out of the disciples that wasn't martyred. So Jesus chose him to live a long life, to be preserved so that he could give him his message to the church. So first John is after the gospel before revelation. It's a book written to his disciples, the one that he's raising up. And the whole theme of it now, as we get into this message, light versus dark, John is going to break it down. It's either good or it's evil. It's either righteous or it's unrighteous. It's either light or it's dark. As 
the apostle of love, he brings more ultimatums and more smack down sentences than any of the other uh, epistles. You would think since he's the apostle of love, he's only going to talk about God is love, you know, because people bring that up. God is love. Have you read the rest of his book? Because trust me, God is love, but God is also a judge who's going to deal with you. That's really clear in the book of John, uh, his epistle here, but most people don't know that that he was also a son of thunder as well as the apostle of love. If you're ready, can I hear you say, I'm ready? All right, let's get into it. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. On my commute here, I already listened to it in its entirety three to four times. I want to encourage you to listen to the whole book of 1 John at least once during this sermon series. It literally will only take about four or five minutes if you listen at double speed. And if you read it, it will only take about 10, 15 minutes, okay? Verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. How many notice a difference already with Paul? Paul writes his epistles, Paul, an apostle sent by Jesus Christ to the church of so-and-so, grace and peace. How are you guys doing? Not with John. Not with John. That which was from the beginning. He starts preaching just like in his gospel, in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It talks about genealogies. It talks about Mary. Let's go to John chapter 1 verse 1 because he also says the word beginning there as well. He doesn't start off with the genealogy of Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 1. How does he start off his gospel? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now go to verse 14, please. He tells you who the word is. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Going back to the notes, you know this is John writing. He says, that which was from the beginning. How did he start his gospel? In the beginning. What John wants you to know is that Jesus has always been God. He will always be God. He's the one that is that the first. He's the one that's the last. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the beginning and he's the end. He's not like any of these other gods you've heard about. In the beginning. Then he ties the beginning to his own story. That the beginning of his portion of the story, he says, we saw, we heard, we looked, we touched. What do you get from this immediately? John is not promoting myth. Anyone who takes our religious beliefs and tries to put it into the category of myth does not understand our writings. 
John is purposefully, right at the beginning, speaking to a culture that believes in many gods. Remember, Christianity was birthed out of a pluralistic of religions, a pluralistic of morality and sexual ethics, okay? So it did not look like what you would say is like the Christian Bible Belt. These men and women were living homosexual, transgender, homosexual, orgy, partying lives and, and, and adultery. And men had sex slaves, little boys that they traveled with them. Pederasty was even allowed. Their emperors were wicked and bloodthirsty. Uh, their culture was greedy and filled with games of entertainment where they would kill and martyr each other. And, and they would feed each other to wild beasts for entertainment. What does it look like when a lion eats somebody? I don't know. Put it into the arena. Take one of the criminals, take one of the prisoners of war, throw them down there and watch them be eaten by a tiger. Oh, let's watch an elephant. Let's, let's, let's watch a man fight an elephant now. They were brutal. And yet they had all of these gods to go with their religion. Gods that went along with their perversion. Gods that went along with their war. Gods that met whatever lustful desire they had. And here come the Christians saying, we're worshiping Jesus, the God of the Israelites who's appeared to us. And now they want to say, well, we have some of those kind of gods too. Maybe, maybe uh, you know, Hercules is like, like your Jesus. And he's like, no, no, no. You're nothing like, you have nothing like our Jesus. Have you touched your, your Hercules? Have you seen him? Has anybody ever touched or seen or heard your Hercules? These are just stories you're believing in. We have seen our Jesus. We have touched our Jesus. Now at this point, people like I've talked to on the streets, they'll say things like, well, I think they're lying. I don't believe them. Well, first of all, what makes you think that? You gotta prove that. You can't just come up and be like, I think they're lying. What reason do they have to lie? Let's, let's see if your claim has evidence. If I'm going to say I believe they're telling the truth and you're going to say they're lying, we both can't be right. So let's look to the evidence. Number one, they're Jewish boys, fishermen. Do you know any Jewish people today? Maybe they're not fishermen, but do you know them as liars? Like, do you think of Jewish people as a culture, as a people group who just loves to lie? They just, they just make up stuff and lie. No, as a matter of fact, they are that people group who gave us the Ten Commandments, and one of them is thou shall not lie. It doesn't mean every Jewish person doesn't lie. I'm just saying, why are we going to accuse Jewish people in their culture, which they upheld, of lying? Number two, Jewish people only believed in one God. They were persecuted by the Romans as well for not believing in all of their gods. They had been brought into captivity because they worshiped the gods of other nations. And after they had been destroyed, they learned not to do that anymore. They were against all forms of idolatry. Why would a Jewish boy, a young man now, be saying, I have seen my God? What does he get from his Jewish people? Nothing but scorn. What did the Jewish people do to Jesus? They put him on a cross. What does he get from the Romans? Nothing but scorn. So sometimes people try to put on them these motives of these false religious charlatans. I had a guy that I was talking to on the streets, and he goes, well, you know, people make up religious lies all the time so they can get money, and they can have power, and they can do this. And I go, okay, so where was the power? Where was the prestige? Where was the women? Where was the money? Where did these disciples get anything from their lies? See, you can't just come up and accuse them of lying. 
Now, I don't think we should be naive and believe what everybody tells us. There could be another book that says, I met an alien, and another book over here. So we have to test their claims. But when we test the claims of the apostles, does the evidence lean towards lying, or does it lean towards telling the truth? Well, let's look at it. Number one, does their story corroborate with other people's stories? Yes. So how many people can tell that lie unto death and not recant? Don't you think Peter would have said at some point, hey, man, don't kill me. He got crucified upside down, right? Don't you think he would have said at some point, hey, guys, I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm telling them we're lying. Peter dies. Thomas dies. He gets speared to death. These men are dying. This uh, man right here, John, was boiled alive. They tortured him, and when they couldn't kill him, they exiled him to an island. Why doesn't he just recant and go, okay, we did see him die. We drug his body out like weekend at Bernie's. We tried to pretend he was alive, but you caught us. Nobody recants the story. As a matter of fact, they take it to their death. Now, at this time, somebody might say, well, people die for stuff they believe in all the time. Yes, but think about it. When the Muslim flies the plane into the building on 9-11, he believes that. He doesn't think he's believing a lie. He's not dying for what he's said is a lie. But here's the difference even between us and them. The disciples are not saying, I hope to touch him one day. Like, I believe even though he's in the grave, one day I'll touch him. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, we touched him. We saw him. We handled him. It's not just a dream. It's not just a vision. It's not just a hope. It is literally for them as if someone came up to you and says, does your mom exist? And you're like, yeah, my mom exists. Have you touched your mom? Yeah, I've touched my mom. Have you seen your mom? Yeah, I've seen my mom. Okay, now I got a problem with that. I want you to tell me your mom doesn't exist. And I want you to tell me you've never touched your mom. Now, could you look back at that person and go, I've never touched my mom. I've never seen my mom. That's literally what people are asking these, uh, these disciples to do. And how much more clear could they have said it? We touched. We saw. I mean, what more could he say? This is not a myth. It's not a vision. It's not something we hope for. So number one, they are telling us the truth based on their own narrative. Why would we doubt them? Number two, when they tell us they've done these things, it's in history and corroborates with the rest of the people saying those things. And then number three, outsiders, those who were not in the initial clique, then become disciples and have stories exactly like theirs. Paul was not an original disciple. He was a good Jew going to the school of Gamaliel, learning all about Judaism while Jesus was doing his thing. As Jesus died, buried, rose again, Paul's not even there. Paul is actually then a part of the Jewish group that persecutes Christians. Yet, he says the resurrected Jesus visits him gives him a message, and when he shows up with the message to Peter, James, and John, it's not like the Book of Mormon, some crazy story. They say back to him, that's the exact message he taught us. And theologians have gone through the letters of Paul where Paul did not even have the Gospels, didn't have these things in his possession. They were later written, but at the beginning of some of his letters, he makes 50 over, sometimes they say 100 references to Jesus in the Gospel without ever being there while Jesus is teaching. Wow. So you mean these people were trustworthy? Their stories corroborated with each other, 
And number three, outsiders come in who gain nothing as well. What did Paul gain from changing from Judaism to Christianity? He just went from being a part of the second hated most group by the Romans to the first hated most group. Are you listening? And the outsiders confirmed it. So John, while he's writing, is basically giving you a take it or leave it. So just imagine now you're, you're a pagan. You're, you're sitting in the church, and you've heard about this new religion starting, and your friend is now a part of it. She's a Christ follower, and John is actually your pastor or the pastor of that congregation, and now they read it to you. You would have a choice to make. Either John is a liar, and all of his friends are lying too, including this guy named Paul, and they're dying for their lies, or these are good Jewish men who have actually had these experiences and it's being corroborated by the evidence. And so you start to take it serious and you go, well, give it a shot. That's really what faith is. Faith is not going against the evidence and playing make-believe. Faith is taking a step after you have the evidence, but now you have to make a decision. Faith really has to do with trust. It's the same thing you used when you sat on that chair. You had the evidence. There was a chair. You've sat in things that looked like this before, but you don't know if we were playing a joke on you. You don't know if the metal's been rusted out. You see the evidence. You've had experience with it, and then you take a step of faith to plop on down. That's exactly what we do in the Bible. We hear them. They're not telling us to just walk by blind faith. No, our apostles are telling us they did touch him. They know we're not going to. They know we can't, but they said we did. And then they tell us their stories. And now with all of that evidence, we either sit down on the gospel and believe it and trust it with our weight, or we move on to something else, but you can't have it both ways. And then I would say as a last point, four is the experience of what they teach I've had in my life. So as the Christians went out and taught that Jesus was still alive, that Jesus would come by the power of the Holy Spirit, that our lives would be changed, 2,000 years later, we're still experiencing the truth of what Jesus Christ did and said. Amen? And so if somebody goes, well, that's just a book written by men. Yeah, your math book's written by men too, and that doesn't mean it's wrong. It, just because this book was written by a man and not written by an angel doesn't mean it's wrong. Examine it. Look at it. Take it for what it is. These people said they met Jesus, they touched Jesus, and they were changed by him. And then notice what he calls Jesus, the word of life. When you look back at his gospel, he talks about the word, and then he says the word has life. Now in his epistle, he gives Jesus a new Holy Ghost nickname, the word of life. I love that. And then look at what he says. He says, we're proclaiming to you eternal life. You see, they had to also have a step of faith. You say, how is that? They saw him, they touched him, they watched him ascend to heaven. Well, guess what? They could have said, maybe that was an alien playing tricks on us. Maybe we all just hallucinated. They had to believe that their experience was true and that Jesus was actually going to be there when they died. I mean, how did they know? Had they died yet? Like I said, they had a culture full of multiple gods. Maybe that was Loki, came down, played a trick on us, just wanting to be worshipped that day. Come on. But they had to take a step of faith too, and that had to do with eternal life. When we die, will we meet him there? 
Is he really in charge of everything or is the world we're living in an illusion or are there just many gods out there and he was one just playing a trick on us in this planet and there's another planet, there's a God playing a trick on them. They had to make their trust and, and their decision and they believed that when they died, they were going to live forever with him. Eternal life. Go to John 3.16. He talked about this in his gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, finish it with me, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Zoe in the Greek is life. This kind of life that never ends. John wants us all to have it. Do you have it today? If you don't, you need to come to the gospel. Repent. Come to Jesus. Receive this message. Let's go back to the notes. He then says something so special at the end. The notes, good sir. Thank you. He says that he wants to do this, testify about eternal life, the word of life, all that he's uh, touched and seen. He wants to do this so our fellowship will be with him. He's saying, I want you to hang out with us. I don't want you to look at me as a pope and I'm somewhere way over here. I want you to come into the inner circle of the apostles. Could you imagine how privileged that would be? You're getting written a letter by one of the apostles and he says, I'm writing this to you so you can hang out with us. You want to meet Peter? Oh, he'll be coming over. You know what? We'll come by and visit you. I wonder if the people at that time understood how amazing it was to have the apostles around them. But he keeps going. He says, it's not just really about you hanging out with us, but here's the cool thing. When you hang out with us, you'll learn to hang out with the Father and the Son. You see, at this time, no one knew how to hang out with the Father and the Son, especially if they hadn't read their Gospels yet. And he's saying, I know how to hang out with the Father and the Son. As a matter of fact, it was John who wrote Jesus' words that aren't found in any of the other Gospels. I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And another part of his gospel, he says, the thief, Jesus speaking, only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. John is saying, I'm inviting you in. You can test it. You can see it. Come hang around us first. See if we're legitimate. Test us out to see if we're lying. Fellowship with us. Keep coming to these Bible studies. That's what he's teaching his people. But as you do, you're going to realize it's not about me. It's not about my brother Peter or Andrew, all these guys, you know, brothers in Christ. It's about Jesus. And then look at verse 4. Look at what he writes there. He says, I'm doing this. I'm writing this so our joy may be complete. There is something today I believe our culture is missing, and that's called complete joy. We have partial joy when we go to the Six Flags, you know, adventure land. We have partial joy when we're with our loved ones. But John, even as close as he was to Jesus, even as much as he knew about Jesus, still would have been left with partial joy if he didn't write this letter because he said in writing this letter, testifying about fellowship with the Father and the Son, his joy was complete. I'm just wondering today, how many of you are willing to go out and preach and testify so that your joy may be complete? I, I would dare to say that some of you are here today, even as Christians, but you're lacking joy. You're lacking good self-identity and self-worth. You're struggling with these things because you have not seen what it's like to share the love of God with other people. There is something that God has reserved in the sense of joy that only comes to those who go out and pour out the love of Jesus. John understood this. It wasn't only 
for their sake. He says, I'm also doing this for my sake. What's the difference between a pond and a river? See, a pond has water, a river has water, but a pond is stagnant. It's self-absorbed. It's self-contained. But a river is flowing from another source. It's giving itself out. Many people want a Christianity like a pond. They always want to go inward. They always want to be self-contained. They want to define their own boundaries. But Christianity is about God flowing in you and through you, touching the world around you. And John said that in that, joy is complete. In that, in that giving spirit, in that generosity, joy is complete. So what do we learn at the beginning here? John is taking us to the historical fact that he walked and talked with Jesus. And Jesus is, in fact, God the Son. And that when you fellowship with the apostles, you fellowship with Jesus as you learn the gospel. And as you learn the gospel, you get eternal life. So you don't need a man in that sense to bring you eternal life, but they needed the words of God spoken through men because none of us would have knew what these uh, messages of Jesus' were unless they took their time to do it, and then Christian preserved it for us. Amen? Let's go to verse 5. This is the message we have heard. Somebody say, this is the message. Thank you. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from how much sin? All sin. Now notice this in verse 5. He summarizes the entire gospel message. He says, this is the message. God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. John, if that's the whole message of Jesus, why have I never heard him speak that? Like he's literally saying, this is the whole message. And then he gives us a quote we've never heard before. Why did he do that? Because he is taking the entire experience he's had with Jesus three and a half years, all that he's had with studying, and he's saying, let me summarize my gospel, let me summarize Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel, let me summarize the message from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God is light, and in him there's no darkness. That's the message. I love how simple John writes to us, but yet he gets so sassy. Here we get the first refutation of the claim he gives, uh, he's going to refute, because he's going to refute three claims in this passage alone about people around him or things, uh, things happen in the church that are not right. Now, just imagine, just to show you pride here for a second, imagine if you're in a church being pastored by John and you're arguing with John about what Jesus taught. That's what pride will do to you. Pride will make a Pharaoh who's watched the God of the Israelites bring all of these plagues, kill his children, but that Pharaoh will chase them in the desert while he's watching that same God part a Red Sea. He'll say, it's a good idea for me to go chase them in there. That's what pride will do. Pride will make a fool out of you. Pride will have you be a created being like Satan, Lucifer, in heaven, and then say, why don't I get worshiped too? Pride will have you be like Adam and even a garden that was created specifically for your enjoyment and say, I still want one more thing. I want to be him. Pride will have you argue with an apostle. Now, listen, I am not the apostle John, but I can read it. And the funny but sad truth is, is that we've had people in this church quote this epistle, put it on Facebook, on their social media, and then people from this church right below it, I disagree with that. I disagree. 
How can you disagree? We just gave you the scripture. It's word for word, copy and pasted. This post did not even have a person's comment. It just had the scripture. Well, I don't agree with that, the way it's said, the way it comes out. This is what we're dealing with in our culture. And it was the same back then because watch, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. Somebody say, you lie. You lie and do not have the truth. Because John has been with him. John knows exactly what Jesus is like. So if you're saying, I'm following Jesus, but you got one foot in the world, you're nothing like him. If you're following Jesus and you still got some darkness in you, you are nothing like him. You are lying. You lie. And you know, the truth is, many of us lie to make ourselves feel better about the darkness we have. But this epistle is to get the darkness out is to teach you that you're not to have any darkness or sin in you. Why? Look at verse 7. Because when you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies you from all sins. Let's go back to John chapter 3, verse 16. He, he continues to verse 17, and he teaches us why people still remain in darkness. Remember John 3, 16. Now 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him Stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now, listen, here it is the verdict. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that they may see plainly what has been done in the sight of God. Can I hear an amen? amen. That what has been done has been done in the sight of God. Go back to the notes. He says to anyone, especially people in our culture, like those musicians who want to say, I just want to first of all thank God for helping me make this album about having sex with women, stealing money, and uh, just rapping all about myself or singing all about myself. I just want to thank God, all these sports stars. I just want to thank God that I'm really rich and I keep all this money for myself and I don't give any to the to church or anything, but I just want to thank God. Or to people like in your, your culture right now, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Nobody's perfect, but I'm a Christian. I live with my boyfriend, but nobody's perfect. I'm a Christian. I get hot. You know, what he says to all those people out there, you claim to know my Jesus and I can see darkness in you, you lie. But hold on, I thought we've sinned, Pastor. Doesn't the Bible say we've sinned? Doesn't the Bible say we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Oh, yeah, that's why there's the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So I should not be walking around as a Christian exemplifying my sin. I should be walking around exemplifying the blood of Jesus. Forgiveness is not just so I can keep sinning. Forgiveness is so I can live free from sin. If I said to you, I clear all your debt, are you going to now go get more debt? You should say, I learned my lesson. I'm not getting any more debt. If we went and let everybody out of jail, does that mean they should go commit a bunch of more crimes so they can go back to jail and we'll let them out again? No, if you've been forgiven, if you've been purified, what is supposed to be your life now? Pure. So Christians, what is their default state? Pure. 
I'm not a dirty glass of water that God's purifying every single day like I'm in the endless water plant of Jesus. I've been here 20 years, still about 10% dirty, only 90% pure. One day I'll be drinkable water. No, the Bible says you start Christianity pure. But what happens if you sin? You become unpure for that time. Now, do you stay in that sin, that unrighteousness or darkness, or do you come back to the light, come back to the blood and say, forgive me, because I want to stay clean. See, the default position is pure. The water coming out of your faucet is pure. You're not waiting for it to be uh, filtered, and some of you still filter your drinking water here because you're weird, and people have told you that, and I still want to tell you that, but that's okay. I filter my water. I filter my... Water's water, friends, okay? Just let me tell you that. It's all quiet in here. A lot of you guys want to keep filtering your water, I guess. Okay. But once you're pure in God's eyes, you're pure. So if the devil comes to you and says, well, you've sinned and it didn't work, no, just ask Jesus to purify you again. Don't let condemnation come and now tell you that you can't be a Christian because you've messed up. But remember that the the default position is pure. If you get a pebble in your shoe, what do you do? You take it out because the default way you wear shoes is without pebbles, amen? The default lifestyle of a Christian is without darkness. It's without sin. Why? Because the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Amen. So if you're here today and you have sin, be purified from it. It doesn't matter what sin you're dealing with. John is saying be purified from it. Okay, well, I have lying sin. Let Jesus purify you from your lies. Well, I'm attracted to the same sex. Let God purify you from that. Well, I get angry and want to fight people. Let God purify you from that. It's hard for me to forgive. I'm bitter towards others. Let God purify you from that. God purifies us from all sins by the blood of Jesus. The blood is powerful, more powerful than all sin. Let's keep going. Verse 8. Now he's going to uh, rebuke these two other claims. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. Come on, somebody say, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Notice these two other false claims. The first one is, I'm without sin. I've never sinned. Now, people in our culture who have been brought up with Christian morals probably wouldn't say that. But in the Roman culture, for sure they would say that. Okay, let me look at what you say a sin is. Nope, I can do that with Hercules. Nope, the goddess Diana lets me do that. Uh, no, this religion lets me do that. No, 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 none of these things on this list are a sin to me. What's, what's the problem, dude? I don't agree with that. And, and right here at the beginning, John is saying, if you're one of those people who thinks you have not broken the law God gave to the Jewish people, you deceive yourself. You are deceived. If you think this is okay, you are absolutely deceived. And I'm sorry in our culture that a lot of those people who do those sins are nice. People live in adultery, they're nice. Like Oprah, she lives in adultery, she's nice. Ellen's a lesbian, she's nice, right? Corrupt people, they, they let you get away with stuff, they're nice to you, right? There's a lot of that in the world you think is nice. Maybe they're family members, maybe they're prosperous. But the Bible says if they are not identifying what their sin is as a sin, they are deceived. There is no truth in them. And how many know it's easy to understand what the Bible calls a sin? It's like super easy. It's so easy to understand. All of these beautiful children here understand what the sins of the Bible are. 
Don't do this. Do this. You know, it's simple. So are we supposed to go in life making excuses for our sins? No, he refutes that false claim. If you're walking around going, you don't think that's a sin, you're deceived. Then he reminds us again. This is the second time he mentions it. He kind of sandwiches it in here. He says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. So once again, if somebody goes, well, now he's perfect, but I thought God makes us perfect in him. I thought that God forgives us of all of our sins. Well, you know what? I was born such and such a way. Yeah, but I thought God cleansed us from all of that. Well, I still get tempted. Yeah, but I thought God cleansed us from that. You see, just because we feel a certain way or we get tempted or, or we, we're convinced by arguments of other cultures, you know, well, in my culture, it's okay. Listen, the Bible is the Bible is the Bible. If we accept it and we're starting from the verse one and going, these guys met them, they hung out with them, then we also have to accept the law code. You have to accept it if you want to be a Christian. But once again, once you accept it and you see how bad you fail at it, are you supposed to make excuses? No, you're supposed to be cleansed from unrighteousness. Yeah, you might be tempted, but don't give in to it. How many know there's a prayer that goes something like that? Lead us not into, but deliver us from. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to say, forget deliver me from evil, man. I'm jumping right into this thing, back flipping. You know, I'm cat walking my way into it. No, you're supposed to be delivered from your evil. You're supposed to be delivered from your time of temptation, not diving into it, then going, well, we're all just sinners, and it came natural, and it felt so good in the moment. Bible is teaching us he's faithful, he's just, he's there with us in our times of temptation. He knows what you're struggling with, and it may be true you were born that way. I was born with a propensity to anger and to be violent. I mean, I've told you stories about that here, but that doesn't mean I give into it. The Bible says he cleanses us from unrighteousness. He changes us. And if I do sin in my anger, I ought to come quickly to be forgiven. And then the last part there says, he, he, he says, well, there's some of you now that claim you have never even sinned. Man, now you're making Jesus out to be a liar. And sadly, there's some people in our culture that have believed this. Now since becoming Christians, they believe in universalism, that because Jesus died on the cross for everybody's sins, everybody's sins are forgiven, and we're really not sinners anymore. We're all just God's creation, and we're going to go to heaven one day. And so if we do wrong things, it's not technically sin because Jesus already took our sins. And they try to make that sound so convincing. They'll say, preachers like me are so angry and so mean, so believe what they're saying. And John is God their number. He says, these guys make Jesus out to be a liar now. Like, are you, you think you're smarter than me? That's one form of pride. You think you're smarter than Jesus? And yet you're calling yourself a Christ follower. That's such a contradiction. So let's go back up. Look at the three false claims that are rebuked here in verse say, six. The first false claim is the person who says, I know Jesus, but I still got some darkness in me. He goes, no, you're lying. That would be equivalent to like a backslide or a lukewarm Christian. The next claim is, you know what? I've never sinned. I'm okay. I don't need your religion. That would be somebody who believes another religion or another worldview. They don't think that the sin law applies to them. He corrects that, and he says, no, you're deceived. And then the last one would be some type of a universalist, somebody that says sin doesn't exist. Jesus took it all. Don't worry about it. We're all going to heaven. And that person is not only now in trouble with John, they're in trouble with Jesus. They're calling Jesus a liar. Does everybody get that? 
So I thank God that the apostle took time to teach us that. Now, chapters and verses weren't written in the original, so let's keep going quickly to have him finish his thought. Verse 1 of chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have Father Tom who will meet you in a dark closet who you will be able to confess your sins to. Does that say that there? No, no, no. My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have yoga classes at the YMCA where you will learn to be free from your bad karma and to be a vegan. Is that what it says? No. My dear children, I write this to you that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. How much more clear could he be about the gospel right here? I mean, he has gone to the heart of it right here. I want you to know in God there's no darkness, there's only light. But I know you have darkness, so let Jesus cleanse you by his blood. You now feel like you can never make a mistake, otherwise you'll feel like you're not a Christian. No, I'm telling you, you're not supposed to sin and do those things. But if you did, have the right heart and come back to Jesus and be forgiven. That way you can identify with Jesus in all you do, not your sin. It's like, who do you identify with? Adam as your father, who is the, uh, the one who brought the, the human race into sin? Or do you identify with Jesus and God the Father who brought us the salvation? Which one do you identify, the race of Adam or the race of God? Are you a people of humanity only or a people of divinity? And that's what he's teaching us here. And what I love is he says it's for the sins of the whole world. So yeah, even though these Romans, they don't think they need it, Jesus paid for their sins. And in our culture, all of these people living in sin, different religions, their sins have been paid for just like ours. So we're no better off than them. Uh, We're no better than them rather, but we're better off than them. Why? Because we accepted it. Can they accept it? Yeah, all they have to do is what, what we did. Go to Jesus. Ask for forgiveness. So can everybody be saved today? Yes. If people are not saved, whose fault is that? It's on them. And then now look at verse 3. He gets sassy again. He says, we know. Somebody say, we know. Come on. Say it like you're from Chicago. We know. We got some street smart Chicagoans here. You know stuff, right? You know what to do to stay safe in this city. This is like the same idea he's saying to them. Y'all know this. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Where did he get that from? Go back to his gospel, John 14, 15. Another unique saying of Jesus only in the gospel of John. Jesus speaking, what does he say? If you love me, keep my commands. Jesus clearly connects love with obedience. Honey, if you love me, you'll take the garbage out. Yes, ma'am, I will. I love you. Kids, if you love me, you will keep your room clean. And my kids said, yes and amen, right? Jesus says the same way. If you love me, keep my commands. Go back to the notes, please. John is reminding us, we know we have come to know him if we keep his commands. If you say you know me, but then you talk about me in a way that makes no sense, you really don't know me. If you met somebody and they said, oh, you go to that church, Metro Praise, maybe you had a shirt on like this, and you're like, yeah. And they're like, oh, I know Joe. Joe loves golf. 
Joe does this, Joe does that. You'd be like, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't like any of that. You know, if you knew me well enough, you would be like, no, Joe is not like that. You're talking about some other Joe. How many know John the Apostle knows Jesus? And he's saying, if you do not keep his commands, I can tell you right now, you don't know him. You do not know the Jesus I hung out with because the Jesus I hung out with said, keep my commands. Not just say, I come to church. Not just say, you believe like how you believe in Abraham Lincoln. No, do something about your belief. Show your love. Look at verse 4. John again makes it plain. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. How much more clearer could the apostle of love make it out to be? You see, he's giving us this because he cares for us. I have reason to believe him. Do you believe John? Then believe John over your friend who says they know Jesus but is still in sin. Because I know they'll try to get you to think John doesn't know what he's talking about. But you better take John's word over their word. Well, you know, we all got sins and God's going to forgive us all and I'll just wait till judgment day. Nope, nope, that's not what John said. That's not the one who was best friends with Jesus said. The one who was best friends with Jesus said, if you know him, there better be some obedience that follow that, that knowing otherwise your love is not real love. You are a liar. Now verse 5, but anyone who obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. See, love is made complete in obedience. How many know when you're in obedient relationships with your spouse, your children, your family, there's real love there. There's real respect there. There's real honor there. You're complete. You're not missing anything. So if you're a Christian that feels like you're missing something, it probably goes back to your walk, not to your talk. You're not walking like how you're talking. You want your love to be complete? Start obeying God's word. Now look at this next portion right here, verse 6. Highlight it, please. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. This is not the post that our friend put up that got people to be sassy, but I want to ask you to post this today. In your own words, on a Facebook post, just post this right now. It's already been done in the first service. Post this up on your social media if you want to be a rock star and be your pastor's favorite. <laughs> want to do this, like make this cool. Whoever claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus did. Just make the hymn Jesus. That's how I would word it so people know who you're talking about. Write that on your Facebook right now. Because I guarantee in this church, there's going to be some of your friends and family that want to come back on that and be like, ah, you know, nobody's perfect. You don't have to live exactly like him. Who can really live like him? And in one sense, they might be right. Because if they're thinking that John is saying, you have to become right before you can live right, that's impossible. That's like cleaning your house and then hiring the house cleaner. That's like washing your car first and then bringing a house cleaner over. You can't clean yourself, by the way. But even if that was what they were understanding, I get their point. But what they're missing is the revelation that comes here. Whoever claims to live in him. You see, when I'm in Christ, I can do all things. Come on, somebody. If you came into a hurricane, how many know some things would change? How many know if you come into Jesus, some things are going to change before the good? How many know if you came into the sun, there would be no more darkness in you? 
How many know if you jumped in the water, you wouldn't be dry anymore? See, we're not saying we're doing this on our own. We're saying we're in Jesus. And when you're in Jesus, things that were impossible now become possible. Just like if you came into my house, you'd be able to eat my food. You'd be able to wear my clothes. You'd be able to have my toys and all of those things. This is what Jesus is saying. When you come into me, I give you my righteousness. I take away your darkness. I give you light. I purify you. And then you can live just like how I live. Jesus is teaching us that when we live in him, we are like him in our actions. In him. That's why one of our, one of our main posts that we have, uh, one of our main uh, icons rather here is in him. One of our main graphics is to get you the revelation of you are in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So put it up there. If it gets a little sassy on your page, tag in your life group leader. We got your back. But explain to people, I live like Jesus not because I made myself like Jesus. It's because I am now in Jesus and he has made me like himself. Ben, would you come up please in closing? The question I want to ask you at the end of the notes is, do you live like Jesus? Do you live like Jesus? If you're here today and you might say, Pastor, I've never really heard the gospel this way. What you want to do is repent of your sins. Then do what John was talking about so that you can live like Jesus. Be born again. Experience God. However, though, there's many of you who have said, I already did that. But here's the problem. Many of you are not living like Jesus. You're using that excuse, I'm still in darkness, I'm still not right. You're still saying those things. But John says, stop talking like a liar. Are you a liar or are you a Christian? Now, some of you go, well, I go to church, I do that. No, that's not what it says. How many know I could go to the Museum of Flight at the Science and Industry Museum but not become a pilot? I could go there every day. You could go to church every day. That doesn't make you a Christian. You have to let Jesus come into you and change you. So if Christianity for you has always been, well, one day I'm light, one day I'm darkness, one day I'm light. One, no, you're not getting it. If you have not seen a definitive change where you've gone from light to darkness, from unrighteous to righteous, from impure to pure, you have not done what John talked about. John said, that's what the gospel looks like. The gospel looks like you literally going from dark to light. So number one, if you're not a Christian, become a Christian today. Start this journey just like we have. If you're here today saying, man, I'm a Christian, but you're convicted of lying because now you're not doing it right, come back to the truth. Any of those claims that you're making that's been rebuked today, get back to the truth. And then number three, listen to me, my friends. If you are here today going, I believe it, I'm living it, I'm just like John, then do what John did and complete your joy. F finish the circle. Finish the cycle of love here because you're not supposed to just sit on this. If you are truly who God said you are and you know that's right, go share it with others. You'll see how that completes your joy. I go out tomorrow night to Chicago and state, not because I have nothing better to do on a Monday night. I have family. I'm in school. I have all of these things, these friends, you guys. I could do so many other things. Why do I go out for my time of evangelism? Because I want my joy to be complete as I testify about what Jesus has done. Why should you go to Life Group this week 
and do evangelism with them because you want your joy to be complete. Come a little bit early. Go walk around the neighborhood. Are you too good for that? You too good to tell somebody about Jesus? Come on. You too good to take time out of your life and give it to someone? I promise you, not only will it benefit them, but it will complete your joy. You will sense God's presence in your life, and you'll never be the same again. How many want to live like Jesus? Let's stand up and give it up for Jesus. We thank you, Lord. Altar workers, would you come, please? Come on, thank Jesus for his word today. It's all about Jesus. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you've given us your truth through the Apostle John. We take his word today as your word into our life, and we want to live it out. Even as I'm praying, if you want to come forward, you can if these apply to you. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you to come know you today, to repent of their sins. Those Christians here who have not been living like you but know they need to, I pray that they get right. And for those of us here who already know and love you but have been shy and testifying and sharing your truth, I pray we get filled with your power and that you'll complete our joy. As we refresh others, you will refresh us. As we give to others, you will give to us. As we get ready to dismiss, if that's you, start to come forward right now. Father, bless us as we go. Teach us to live for you. Show us your truth. Remove all darkness. In Jesus' name we pray and everybody said amen and amen. God bless you.